This morning, we are going to be carrying on uh, in our series in the book of Luke, where we're going to be considering a question that was raised by the disciples of Jesus. And that question is, who is the greatest? And I don't know about you, but when I hear those words, who is the greatest, it automatically uh, calls to mind Muhammad Ali, because he was quite famously known for his, his, it was almost a catchphrase of saying, I am the greatest. And I, I, of course, many as well revere, revere Muhammad Ali as a great boxer, and many revere him as a great human being. But there's one story above all that actually shows just how limited his self-perceived greatness was. Now, once he was on a flight, or about to take off on a flight, and the stewardess came around and she said to him, excuse me, sir, do you mind just putting your seatbelt on? And he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And her response was excellent. She said, Superman don't need no airplane either. Now put your seatbelt on. Now, as you can imagine, he then obliged to do as he was told. Now, like Muhammad Ali, like Jesus' disciples, we all have preconceived ideas as to what it is to be great. And today, as we open the book of Luke, we want to see what it is that Jesus says about being great. So please turn with me to Luke chapter 22, where we're going to begin just by reading verse 24. So Luke 22, verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded the greatest. Okay, to help us understand it a little bit better, what's going on here, it's worth considering the context within which this dispute has taken place. So in the verses leading up until this point, we see Jesus, who is the Son of God, God himself, he's instituting the Lord's Supper. He's instituting communion. And of course, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance designed to remind us that we are redeemed, to remind us that we are saved by the broken body and by the shed blood of Jesus himself, showing us that we are free from slavery to all things, including, perhaps most pertinently in this case, freed from slavery to self-worship. Not only this, having instituted this supper, Jesus goes on to explain to his disciples that, that, that his death, this death that would bring about the salvation to all who believed, including the 12 people that were sat around the table, whilst obviously part of God's sovereign will, part of God's sovereign plan, that this death would be brought about by the betrayal and by the deception of one of the people who was there present. It's difficult to imagine a greater sin than this. This is shocking truth that Jesus is delivering to the twelve at this point we pick up the passage. Their response to this dual horror and glory of what Jesus is telling them should have been one of mourning, repentance, and worship. But rather surprisingly, what we see is each disciple seemingly becomes kind of obsessed or preoccupied by themselves and what position they would have in God's plan for salvation. It's pretty crazy, isn't it? But I wonder, do we ourselves 
sometimes do this very same thing. Does our sin, does our pride, does our self-righteousness ever blind us into missing the wonder and the scandal of God's grace towards us? And in doing so, do we get preoccupied by what we believe is due to us? Maybe you'll constantly find yourself chasing the next thing, that next car, that next house, that next holiday, that position of status like we see with the disciples here. Or it could be manifested in maybe harboring anger at the lack of recognition that you get in your workplace. Sure, you work harder than everybody else, but because you're not in the clique, you never get that promotion that you feel you deserve. Maybe you're carrying bitterness and and unforgiveness to somebody who has done you wrong. You feel that you can't let it go until that person knows exactly how hurt you are and how hurt that you feel because of them. Whatever, there are many ways that pride can blind us from seeing the truth. The truth being that Jesus, through his body, through his spilt blood, through his resurrection, we have all received far more than we deserve. Not one exception to this. As we read in Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What we deserve is separation from God. But through Jesus, we receive the exact opposite, complete and perfect restoration with our relationship with God, which means we're free. We are free to stop chasing recognition. We're free to let go of past hurts and of unforgiveness. But as happens to all of us at times, what we see here, the disciples in today's passage have very quickly forgotten this. In their pride and in their desire, for what they think is greatness. So let's see how Jesus responds, looking at verses 25 to 27. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you Become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Now, as is entirely consistent with Jesus, what we see here is he takes the world's values and he turns them completely on their head. Just as he demonstrates, he is saying to us that those who are the greatest of those who should serve. Ultimately, he's saying, you see these Gentile kings, these people that are considered great in the eyes of the world, they lord it over people. This is the wisdom of the world. The great are to use their power to their advantage. They're to use their authority in order for personal gain. But of course, this is not what Jesus is teaching here. He is teaching us that like him, we should be serving in order to achieve greatness. Now, in the last few years, a lot has been written, even in the secular world, about servant leadership. 
as psychologists understand more and more about what makes a successful leader over a long period of time. So this concept, probably to us, doesn't sound that alien, even though very few of us have probably seen it modelled well in the workplace. But for the culture that the disciples would have been steeped in, this would have sounded like complete and utter madness. For them, greatness equals authority equals power. Which is why the idea that God would come down and he would die on a cross would have sounded completely and utterly ridiculous to the Jews, to the Romans, to the Greeks, to the whole of the ancient world. The Apostle Paul talks of this in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27 to 31. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So if what Jesus is saying here sounds unusual, the reason for this is because it is unusual. Even in a world today that gives lip service to servant leadership, to lower ourselves in this way is actually the exact opposite message that we're fed, perhaps even an opposite message that we subconsciously repeat each day. Do well in school so that you can get ahead. Give your everything to get that promotion. Get your money's worth. Considering this, it should be no surprise to us that what Jesus is saying here is a jarring message. And in the account of the Lord's Supper that the Apostle John wrote, we actually see a little bit of extra detail as to what happened. So let's read John chapter 13, verses 3 to 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to go back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash, wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now Jesus, who is the greatest man who ever lived, he lowered himself entirely to wash the feet of those who are not even worthy to buckle his shoes. This in itself would have been quite surprising. If the Queen of England came into your home group or to your house this week and she washed the feet of everybody there, I think you would probably find that quite astonishing. No doubt it would be a story that you'd be telling for years to come. The queen, she came round and she kind of took our shoes off and she put a towel around her and she washed our feet. You'd be, I'd be dining out on that for years as a story. But Jesus is so much greater than the queen. There is no comparison. And I, I love the queen, but there is no comparison. And not only this, but whilst he, what Jesus did in washing his disciples' feet, whilst that is mind-blowing in itself, it is a minuscule picture of his ultimate act of service to us in going to the cross. Because, of course, when Jesus went to the cross, here he washed us entirely clean. 
in going to the cross, he took on all of our dirt and all of our sin onto himself. And he is telling his disciples, indeed, he is telling each and every one of us here who is a follower of him, he is telling us that we are to be like him. We are to imitate him. We are to do the same. And this is very challenging to hear because as Christians, we are not called into lives of comfort. We are called to give up everything that we have, which of course is given to us by God himself anyway, but we're called to give up everything we have in order to serve others. We are to put to death our ambition, our desire for status and for wealth. We're to embrace a life of servitude to reflect and to bring glory to Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but my heart struggles with this. This is not my natural desire. If you were to phone me up one evening and say, hey, Aaron, do you want to come around and watch some football and grab some pizza and, and, and we can just chill out? Then you wouldn't have to ask me twice. I'd be at your front door in approximately two minutes. Because these things, football, pizza, chilling out, they bring me comfort. This is what my heart is often desiring. But if you phone me up and said, hey, Aaron, tonight me and, me and Hunter, we're going out and we're going we're gonna to go and wash some needy people's feet my heart quite quickly would be filling up with reasons for why I can't make that. Because often I don't want to serve. I want to be served. Because in the moment, my heart craves comfort far more than I'm willing to put up with inconvenience. And we follow always what our hearts think will make them happiest. So let's see how Jesus responds to this. Verses 28 to 30. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now there are times where, as a father, sometimes I'll surprise my children. Maybe I'll go to a sweet shop and I'll pick up some sweets and I'll take them home and I'll give them to them. And more often though than I care to retell, what happens is within seconds, their initial gratitude has descended into absolute chaos because Jasmine's got more Skittles than me, or Talia's taken all the red ones, or my personal favorite, Oscar's touched them all and put them back in the bag. Like the disciples in the passage that we're reading today, in this instance, my children have completely lost sight of the fact they've got sweets, they've got a gift that they didn't have only minutes before. It's something that they've not earned. It's not necessarily something they deserve, but instead they are preoccupied by where their privilege ranks alongside others. And to my shame, my default response is to lose it with them. Don't be so ungrateful. Just eat the sweets that you've got. It's better to have blue ones and purple ones than no sweets at all. I might concede them on the kind of Oscar touching them complaint, because a 10-year-old's boy's kind of hand-washing habits often aren't quite where they should be. But, but by and large, I will, I'll, I'll kind of I'll feel anger in me. It's, why, are you, why are you responding like this to this free, free gift I've given you? But surprisingly, Jesus, he doesn't take this approach here with his disciples. He doesn't chastise them. He rightfully could do, because their argument that they're having, this dispute, is rooted in sin. It could not be more self-serving. 
Instead, though, what we see is how Jesus displays his incredible grace in forgiving this sin, and he turns our eyes back onto him. How does he do this? Well, first, what he does, he begins by encouraging them, pointing out to them that their potential greatness will not stem from worldly praise, but rather it's going to come from their faith in him, demonstrated in their endurance alongside him through trials. Which, as we've seen in the book of Luke, as as we've studied it over the last couple of years, a number of times that this has happened. So one notable example, back in Luke chapter 5, where we read that Simon and James and John, it tells us that they left everything they had to follow Jesus. Everything. This is certainly a challenging trial for them to overcome. It's easy to read through this, I think, isn't it? And and kind of not really thinking, okay, they left everything they had and they followed Jesus. But just imagine that. They walked away from their jobs, all of their possessions. Maybe they had elderly relatives that they'd never see again. Certainly they would have had loved ones. Following Jesus was a very difficult decision for the disciples in chapter 5. And it doesn't explicitly say this here, but this, of course, would have been true for all the 12 that were around the table that evening. For each of them, following Jesus meant giving up their lives as they knew them. Another example of a trial that we see throughout the book of Luke is the number of times that they stood shoulder to shoulder with Jesus in his many confrontations with the Jewish religious leaders. And obviously we don't think of what the disciples are doing at this point. But of course, these leaders, they were revered, they were respected in the communities that the disciples had come from. To go against them, to be on Jesus' side, would have undoubtedly have been costly. And of course, the other thing that we see with the benefit of hindsight in the, the book of Acts, which is effectively the sequel to the book of Luke, we see the immense trials that the followers of Jesus went through, being beaten, being imprisoned, some even being killed because of their faith in him. Again, this should be a resting to us. Are we willing to endure such things for our faith? I think it's easy to have doubts in the moment when faced with trials, when faced with suffering as a result of serving Jesus. We can think, is this all really worth it? Would it be worth giving up my life for Jesus, giving up my freedom? Well, let's again read those verses, verses 29 to 30, to see how Jesus motivated them. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Here Jesus is promising the disciples that they will eat and drink at his table, And he is saying that they will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, in light of the argument, in light of the dispute that these disciples have just been having, particularly in light of the fact in only a few verses' time, we know that these disciples are all going to desert Jesus. This again rams home his incredible grace towards them and towards us. Because as we've seen, we will be rewarded with far more than we deserve. This should be a huge motivator for us to endure with Christ in suffering and through service. Because no one, nobody is going to get to the new heavens and the new earth and be 
You mean I sacrificed and I worked so hard for, for this? This is, this, is a measly, this is a measly reward for, for all I did on earth for Jesus. Rather, we will marvel. We will marvel when we get to experience the truth of what we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. What is your greatest pleasure on earth? It might be chocolate or roller coasters or spending time with your loved ones. It's going to be different for all of us. But what we're reading here is that nothing that we experience on this earth, here and now, will compare, will compare with what we have prepared for us in eternity. Indeed, these things that we, we can love so much now, they are so insignificant that they're not even big enough to seed our wildest dreams of the pleasures that he has prepared for us. This is exciting. Now, one question that I think is worth thinking about a little bit here is what does Jesus mean when he says that the apostles will sit on thrones Oh, sorry, I've lost my place. Sorry, yeah. One question uh, that we should think about is, what does Jesus mean when he says that the apostles will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, Paul says that all believers will judge the world and will judge angels. So we'll just quickly read that passage. Or do you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Now, exactly what this looks like is not clear. And whilst this can be frustrating to me with my overblown ego, I want God to tell me, everything that I want to know. I think that this is okay. Jesus has told us everything that we need to know. We can trust him on that. But the picture I think that Jesus is clearly painting here is that we will be exalted in ways that we absolutely do not deserve. Breathtakingly so. Again, this is part of our prize, part of our reward for following Jesus. And it would appear from what we read in the passage today that the apostles will somehow have a leading role in this. In some way, their reward will be greater. And again, it's not clear exactly what that will look like. But what Jesus is doing is he is elevating them to a status of greatness that is far higher than one they could possibly achieve themselves. Certainly far higher than the greatness that they were considering as they were disputing over which of them was greatest. And crucially, I think when you put these two passages together, we can see that all believers will get to share in this glory. And then there is this amazing description of us eating and drinking with Jesus. Sorry, I've got a new iPad and it's all over the place whenever I touch it. Where are we? Apologies for this. Sorry, yeah, we have this description of Jesus eating, of us eating 
or the apostles eating and drinking with Jesus. And this is intended, of course, to point us to the joyous fellowship that we will one day have for eternity in his presence. This fellowship will bring us more satisfaction than any earthly pleasure we can even conceive. Any inconvenience, any hardship that we endure here and now in serving Christ will reap blessing upon blessing upon blessing on the day that his kingdom comes. So all that is left for us to consider is how do we respond to this? And I think the passage pushes us towards three things that we're to do. Firstly, we need to seek, sorry, we need to see the grace of God. And secondly, we need to fix our eyes on the prize. And then thirdly, we need to serve. So what does this look like? Well, firstly, how do we more fully and clearly see the immense grace of God? Well, in this passage, we see Jesus demonstrating his grace towards the twelve. He says that they will be considered as great and will be raised into a place of glory. And the same is true, as I've said, for all who believe, but not because of what we do, not because of what we achieve, but entirely because of who Jesus is and entirely because of what he has done. So we need to meditate on this very passage that we've been reading today. And we need to meditate on other verses and one excellent verse or or one excellent passage for us to meditate on is Romans 3 verses 20 to 24. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus. All have sinned. Not one of us, not one of us can receive, can reach his glory. Righteousness, justification, they are completely out of our reach. But we are justified, we are redeemed, we are saved by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We need to get this into our hearts. And when we do, we will be able to put to death striving and seeking for our own glory. And we will begin to start striving and seeking after Jesus' glory. And this is an ongoing process for all believers this side of Jesus' return. So we must pursue this aggressively, meditating on Scripture, crying out for God to help us, spending time with other believers, encouraging each other towards seeing the magnitude of God's incredible grace towards us. And then secondly, we need to fix our eyes on the prize, just as Jesus encourages the disciples to do. Sin will always seek to avert our gaze from him and back onto the greatest idol of all, ourselves. If you've ever spoken to an elite athlete, they will tell you that particularly in the run-up to an event or a race or a competition, they will tell you that their whole life revolves around that competition. What they eat, when they sleep, even down to what they wear, is kind of all micromanaged to the nth degree to maximize their performance. Many will even go months without seeing their families ahead of a big event with the goal on reaching that 
prize. Indeed, Paul talks in these terms again in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says this in verses 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a peri- an imperishable, sorry, a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So what is this prize? What is this imperishable wreath? Well, one day we will get to feast in the presence of Jesus as he has just promised the apostles as we've read. And by his grace, here on this earth, we can experience a taste of this through the Holy Spirit who he has given us. When we bow the knee before Jesus, when we exalt his name in praise and in worship, he fills our hearts such that nothing on earth can compare. Here and now, Jesus can be our greatest treasure. But in eternity, this joy, this satisfaction... This shall be magnified exponentially. Every moment shall be spent perfectly experiencing Jesus' presence. There is nothing, there is nothing on this earth that is worth sacrificing this prize for. Nothing will bring even the tiniest fraction of heart satisfaction than knowing Jesus for all eternity. So again, let this permeate your hearts such that it motivates you towards lowering yourselves in service of others. And then finally, the third thing we need to do is simply to humble ourselves and to serve. And there are many, many ways that we can do this. It could mean serving joyfully on kids' work at church, even though it's not something you naturally enjoy. Or it could be spending time with that person at work that you know is lonely, even though you had a whole plan for kind of watching Netflix this evening, but because through that relationship, you might be able to share Christ with them. Or it could be giving up your weekend to pray and to fast for your friend, your Christian brother or sister who is ill or has lost their job. But we will have often, all of us will have what sound like good reasons not to do this stuff. To be clear, there are no good reasons. There are excuses. There's no good reasons. For example, you might be thinking, I have to spend every hour that God gives me, I spend it at work. I have no time to serve Jesus or to serve others. Okay, how can you serve Jesus? How can you serve others in your workplace in order to bring him glory? Maybe you might be thinking, well, I'm just at home all day with the kids. Well, you need to see that this is an incredible opportunity to serve Jesus. If you're at home all day with the children, then you get the opportunity to raise disciples in your own home. Possibly, you might even be thinking, well, I'm waiting on God before I start serving to tell me what area it is that I need to serve in. He's telling us right here in Luke 22, in black and white, that we must serve. This is God speaking to all of us right here, right now. Of course, it is good to pray for direction as to how God is going to use us. But actually, whilst we wait, 
we serve, we do not wait passively. So just to loop back round to the question that the disciples started with, who is the greatest? Hopefully, we can all see that the answer to this one is very, very easy. The greatest one is the one that humbly gave up everything in order that we too could share in the spoils of his great victory over death. Praise Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your kindness, your grace, your mercy towards us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have achieved everything that we could possibly need. Lord, your grace is sufficient for all of our needs. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the magnitude of that incredible grace that you have shown us, Lord. Put it in our hearts, Lord. I pray that you would put within us a passion to serve the community around us. Lord Jesus, that you would help us to to know how to serve those who live in our our neighborhoods, Lord, in our workplaces. Lord Jesus, pray that you would give us a real desire to see you glorified wherever we go. In Jesus' name, amen.